Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Clay Wesson. We're at uh, Domain Willamette in uh, Dayton. It's January 18th, 2023. Clay, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Rich. Uh, First question to get you started is why wine? You know, why wine is something I've sat with for a while of how, you know, uh, how we wind up in this industry. Uh, I know you've done a lot of interviews. You've probably heard a lot of stories from people. Um, I think for me, uh, getting in the wine industry was about connecting with people that were passionate about what they were doing. And there's a very high emphasis on quality. Um, As somebody that's worked in different aspects of the grain industry, coming from the nursery industry, you know, there's times where you're cranking out the same plant out of a greenhouse year after year. Uh, Getting into living in McMinnville for 15 years, uh, you started connecting with people in the industry, started connecting with their passion their kind of excitement of what they were doing, how every vintage was a little bit different. You didn't want to create the same thing every year because, you know, sometimes Mother Nature wouldn't allow that. And so you got to see these nuances and see these things through the growing season. And so I think that's what initially drew me into the wine industry um, was a connection with agriculture where people really, truly cared about the quality. So let's talk about your life before wine a little bit. Tell me about your upbringing uh, and kind of education and how you did end up in Oregon. Yeah, sure. Uh, So I'm originally from North Alabama. I'm a small town called Hartzell, about seven or 8,000 people at the time. Grew up there my whole life. And uh, after high school, I went to Auburn University uh, where I took a little bit of time going through business administration and I had always worked outside, working at golf courses, a lot of outdoor activity work, and you know, I started realizing I wasn't probably going to be extremely happy with business administration, maybe as a life choice. So I was talking to some friends of mine from my hometown that were going through the horticulture program at Auburn, and it kind of started making a little more sense to, m- to me about that. Um, my grandfather was actually a soil agronomist and graduated from Auburn University, and my both my mother and father went to Auburn as well. So uh, while I was there, I felt like I was kind of connecting with a lot of my, um, my family's history at, at that beautiful spot in the world and ended up uh, changed my major halfway through. Not, not far from getting a minor in business, I went into horticulture. Delayed my graduation quite a bit, but um, to bring it up to 2007, I did a summer internship in Oregon. I was getting ready to graduate that fall, and I had a free summer, and decided to get out and go see what was out across the country. So that summer, I worked for Bailey Nurseries. It's located in Yamhill, Oregon. Uh, I had a really remarkable 10-week internship, and I had that feeling that when I left, I didn't feel like my time in Oregon was complete. (laughs) Um, So I went back, and I finished my degree, and was still on the fence, um, but was actually offered a job by Bailey Nurseries to return for a assistant grower position uh, in their propagation department, which I had enjoyed during my time as an intern. So uh, made the decision in February of 2000, 
or made the decision in December, but moved out to Oregon in February of 2008 and uh, landed in McMinnville and have been here since. So, yeah. So tell me about your initial impressions of Oregon. What was it about it that made you think you needed to stay here a little bit longer? Well, for one thing, 10 weeks, although that's a bit of time, especially when you're holding a full-time job, that wasn't a lot of time. I would try to be a weekend warrior and go see things I wanted to see, but there was a list of places I didn't get a chance to even explore. Uh, that was one part of it. Uh, I love going to Mount Hood, snowboarding, uh, taught myself since I moved to the state, and I also uh, surf off the coast, and so having the mountains and the beach were definitely a draw. Um, other things is that Alabama can be quite hot, humid, and uh, working outside is not that enjoyable, <laughs> frankly. So I found a place where you know the nights were a little bit cooler. You didn't have that humidity. Uh, the first couple of months living in Oregon, it did rain all the time, as I was told. Uh, February was a very cold month that year, and I went straight from driving across the country to working outside in the type of weather that we're having today of 40 degrees and rainy. Um, but there was something really kind of refreshing about that, to um, really understand the water cycles and understanding the life forces that you, we, we have a benefit of the rain in Oregon. That's why things are so lush. They're growing and uh, learning to snowboard really got me through those first few winters of realizing that if it's raining in the valley, it's snowing on the mountain. So I had a good escape on the weekend. Um, but yeah, that's was the impression that I had, and I'm still trying to mark things off my list of things to do in this state. It is a big list. Yeah, for sure. So you're here working on the nursery side. You have background in horticulture. So tell me about the first couple of years here, and at what at what point does viticulture start to enter into your enter into your kind of life? You know, ironically, so 2008 went went by 2000 and. Uh, Around 2010, I took a trip that was pretty remarkable in my life. Of uh, I had the ability to go to Nepal uh, and spent a whole month in the month of Nepal. And that was in October of that year. So literally flew out on the 1st and came back on November 1st. Um, got to see, you know, some kid from Alabama gets to go travel the world and see, see what's really out there. Um, but while I was there and we're hiking, we hiked around the uh, Montesloo mountain range and the Annapurna. Uh, there was a part that we were at seven days of hiking away from a road with an automobile. And those are those moments where you just realize like we're, you know, I'm on my own here. You know, I was with a, with a group of people, um, but at the same time, you had to have helicopter insurance to even go on that hike because if something happened, you had to be evacuated and that was the method. So you kind of get a lot of time, a lot of walking, a lot of meditative space. Um, but I will say I started admiring the agriculture over there. And I uh, remember asking the farmers, because I was starting to learn, I'd learned a lot about chemical agriculture and was always curious, um, getting back to my grandfather, he was a, subscribed to Rodell's Organic Gardening magazines in the 60s and 70s, and he was practicing that in Alabama. And I always had that question, even through school, well, why can you not do organics? What, why is that not possible? And often it's like, well, I tried that back in 1988 and it didn't work, so it doesn't work. And I just kind of had this notion that looking at it as a challenge, how could we overcome that? But 
jumping back to the trip in Nepal, I, you know, we're quite a ways from the road and I'm asking the farmers, you know, naively, are you guys organically farming or are you guys, and they were like, what are we going to do? Put the chemicals on a donkey and bring it up the hill? Like I, you know, is this a serious question? And I was kind of humbled in that, but, um, Ironically, I connected with a plant there that we use in vineyards and other places as a cover crop, buckwheat. Um, but as we were hiking at lower elevation at like 800 feet, I got to watch the farmers in the lower valley planting that seed. And as we're hiking up in elevation, over the course of a week, I got to see that life cycle mm -hmm. of a buckwheat, where when we got to about 7,000 feet, they were actually harvesting it and threshing it and making like their, their, their food out of it. The, buckwheat meal that they were making kind of pancake type mm -hmm. products out of our mm -hmm. um, food. So that was just interesting to make that connection and started seeing like, well, we had the grain revolution and we had the chemical revolution. And often if you go to school for this, that's kind of the direction they push you towards. And people ask how I got into organics or even biodynamics. And it was like, I easily say like I was a better biology student than I was chemistry. <laughs> like I'd never really wanted to learn a ton about these things. I was more about the life processes and that's probably what kind of helped guide me. But getting with that, those, that trip really kind of shifted something in my mind. And when I came back to Oregon, it was a, you know, a life changing trip and everybody was, Oh, did you see the Blazers game? Did you see these things? It's like, no, I, literally just got back. I'm still adjusting, reintegrating what I learned. Um, but not long after that, I actually had a chance to, I moved from the apartment that I was living in and moved in with um, Vince Vadrine, who is very much been in the wine industry and been around. I'm not even sure where he's at these days, but he, uh, I was still working for the nursery, but I started kind of tapping in a little bit to the wine industry at that point. And I remember he took me up to um, Maresh Vineyards and we were connecting with other folks in the industry and I was very green. I would go to these tasting events with him and the group of friends, Chaney, his brother eventually, and um, have the brown bag tastings. And everybody was very curious what I thought because I was not in the industry. Um, I hear that happens with winemakers that uh, much like I do with the landscapes and vineyards, you look for the flaws. You don't you know, you don't see the flowers because you see the weeds. And that was something that was a really interesting experience. And through them, met a, a good group of friends um, that uh, actually Robert Mosier, Larry Mosier, they're both from Alabama, so we had a little connection there. And I believe Robert's at Northwest Wine Company and Larry's at Selena and, um, you know, made some good friends in the industry. And I do remember Vince telling me at that time, like, you should really look at getting into the wine industry. At that time, I was still pretty content with the nursery world. It's what I went to school for. It's what I felt like I was good at. Um, and once I left Bailey's in 2012, I started working for the Gemhill Soil and Water Conservation District here in the McMinnville area. And uh, left the more corporate nursery setting and went to growing native plants for habitat restoration up at their Miller Woods location. And that was a pretty... Um, a good transition, it felt like more of an alignment for me that I could attune myself to working with the kids, doing the plantings, working with the fish and wildlife to do these restoration projects. And that felt a better use of my horticulture skills than um, 
you know, cranking out the same plant out of a greenhouse. And so um, I had a lot of really good interactions with the public there. And mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> actually was just speaking to Chris Sarah last week in an event at Stoller and uh, the 2014 plant sale that we held in McMinnville was really good, except that year in Oregon, we had a torrential snowstorm <laughs> that happened at 10 o'clock the morning of the plant sale. So we were like, should we cancel it? Should we not? We're sitting on about 50,000 plants and we kept it open until cars started having accidents sliding in the parking lot to come to the plant sale. It's a very large event in our area and uh, a lot of excited plant enthusiasts. And so we, we canceled the plant sale and then because of that, a lot of people canceled their orders. Oh, I was driving down from Portland to get my plants. I, I don't need those. So I was left with an excess of plants. And I proposed that we go, because I'd heard about life. You know, I'm looking for these organic kind of sustainable options. And I really admired what live was doing in the wine industry. Because um, we have the green industries of the farming and nursery, but there was never really, I never saw that much emphasis truly on you know, sustainability as a priority. Mm-hmm. So I had a chance to go to the live annual meeting and I ran into some friends there or some people I knew and they knew the plight I was in with the native plants. And they said, well, you should get up and tell them that you're having an Earth Day sale. So I wasn't ready and then all of a sudden I forget exactly who it was, but they were standing on stage. It's like, yeah, we want to introduce Clay Wesson. He's with the Soil and Water District and I got thrust onto the stage. <laughs> And I said, hi, you know, I know you all are working with the ecological compensation areas and you need to plant plants on your property. We encourage natives. Um, We're having a plant sale. We have great deals. Like, please come buy these plants so I don't have to plant them in the nursery, you know. (laughs) And it ended up that we had quite a good turnout. And that was like another little connection with the industry. Um, And jumping back, when I was at Bailey Nurseries, I started... Um, learning more about organics and kind of started listening to podcasts and audio books and um, listening to Rudolf Steiner's agriculture lectures um, as a little bit of, you know, just keeping your mind active when you're doing kind of tasks that don't necessarily require that. And I started getting connected around 2013 with the Oregon Biodynamic Group, which I think was a complementing my pathway that I was on with the native plant nursery. Um, One thing that was unique was I started shifting away from using synthetic fertilizers and pesticides at that point, which was quite easy in a native plant setting because those plants grow naturally in Oregon. They don't have a ton of pests that you're trying to combat. Mm -hmm. Um, And often when you sell plants in the wintertime in that setting, they don't have leaves anyway, so customers aren't. It's not retail ready like you'd want in a nursery setting where it has to look perfect for Mother's Day. Uh, people would accept a little, you know, um, quality, you know, because it's a living plant and the next year it'll pick back up. So um, I wanted to tie that in with the Oregon Biodynamic Group because we have uh, kind of quarterly meetings and it ties in with the seasons of the year. And so we do the prep making in the fall and we do the spring unearthing and the summer meeting and a winter study group. and. That's really been a backbone of kind of the foundation of going to those groups, having that little bit of recharge. Um, but, and also selling native plants at that time and being a real enthusiast, putting on workshops in, for the local community, working with Linfield, I believe on like some of the 
Camas project that's down in the wetland. And um, I, I also had a good friend of mine whose name was Duncan Reed that fell into the sustainability coordinator at Linfield. Mm -hmm. And so he, I just kind of was surrounding myself with a lot of folks that were enthusiastic about this. And um, when things were hard, it was always having people to bounce ideas off of and kind of get prodded along your path, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll tell you, and the reason I tied in the Oregon Biodynamic Group was I'd connected there and then eventually at the live meeting again with Nadine Lubet-Basil, who's uh, formerly at Soder, but she's since moved from the area. But she was a little bit of a mentor of mine and helped make some good connections. And uh, one really key connection that I can tie was in uh, 2014. She had connected me with Janie Brooks at Brooks Winery. And um, that's really what kind of launched me fully from being a nursery salesman into the wine industry, um, for sure. So in 2014, as you're as at that point, as you're getting into the you're kind of getting into the wine industry, uh, where were you? Do you would you consider yourself to be in, into biodynamics all the way? Were you still kind of learning about it? Where 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 was your kind of your mindset as you entered into the wine industry? Yeah, you know, I saw that. Um, well, a mentor of mine that's actually from Italy, um, uh, Adriano Zago. He he comes comes to the area and does workshops, but I was at his most recent one last year at Montanor, and he said a line that really resonated with me that I think impacted me in biodynamics. And he said, I want to remind you all that biodynamics is never the goal. The goal that we're always striving for is quality, and biodynamics is a tool to achieve that quality. And I was practicing it, and I, I did make a, you know, uh, I guess a acknowledgement that especially in the native plant nursery that there was no reason that we needed to spray glyphosate there was no reason we need to spray these chemicals i started getting into like using fermented teas and using the nettles and the comfrey and fermenting it for a while straining the juice diluting it and applying that as a fertilizer as kind of a natural foliar feed and started seeing a great response and had a really good chance to do trials and do these types of things of like a control and a treatment and you got to see kind of the instant impact, you know, mm -hmm. darker greens versus kind of lime, light greens. And you started to tell that the plants were healthier. So I was kind of slowly being sold on it. And also that going through life looking for the challenge, you know, well, can this be done? And in the wine industry, you know, we touched earlier about um, the early early adopters of like the Jimmy Brooks and the Mesara and these other folks that were doing it um, you started seeing a little momentum behind it and for me it's a lot of reasons that people would choose these paths some people will do it because they want to sell more wine and they want a story to tell and some like myself was getting into it because well the em environmental benefit mm -hmm. if there were more people that looked at like closing the loop and looked at their farms of a closed organism and you know, didn't necessarily feel like they had to go buy all their products in plastic jugs or bags. Um, what are these ripple effects that that could cause, you know, and how that could create an environment we want to live in. Um, Aldo Leopold said in one of his books that uh, Sand County Almanac that, you know, being an ecologist is, can be very challenging because you're living in a world full of wounds that if you start to look, you start to see all the, the problems um, that a lot of farming decisions have caused. 
Um, went through a program to learn that, you know, 97% of the Oregon white oaks are no longer in the valley. You know, we plant oak trees to try to rehab sites that would have been great if we could have just not removed the oaks in the first place. So you start to see all these kind of issues and then the wine industry um, and getting into the biodynamic side of it was like, how do we look at the land as a gift and a privilege for us to steward? How can we treat it with that level of respect to not do these um, practices that are being shown and the further we get down the line, the more we're saying, why are we doing it this way? Um, with erosion, with soil loss, with now the impact on no-till and regenerative agriculture that we're starting to see. Um, you know, you started to realize that maybe before the chemical revolution, maybe we were actually doing things quite well. And then we got through marketing and other things that we won't go into, we were guided as these, these are the quick fixes, these are the easy tools. Um, but I do think that getting back to that was, um, is a necessary act, a necessary step that we need to take, um, especially for food. You know, we can't ignore that wine is a luxury product. You know, if uh, a lot of things would suffer if the wine industry wasn't here um, in many ways, but you know, people would still get on with their lives and still find a way to get their three meals a day. Um, but wine is something that ideally we'll, you know, enjoy at night with friends over, over great meals. And, um, you know, it provides a lot of jobs and a lot of other things. But, you know, I think with biodynamics, I was really connecting with the food mm -hmm. and the food quality and what we're actually ingesting. Mm -hmm. And wine did seem like a nice caveat because um, people put their hearts into making wine. And then they get put into a bottle. And then that bottle gets shared with friends or family or consumed. So that's something that's actually being taken in that wasn't really able to be seen with the native plants, you know. Uh, some of my native plant plantings, if you look at them now, it looks like a big brush pile, you know. <laughs> Unless you get your red flowering current that's flowering, you get that visual appeal, but you're not really getting the sensory appeal of wine. Mm -hmm. So that was getting back to the quality that really was part of the authentic story that I think we we're telling at Brooks and um, in 2014 I did have a chance to go to um, you know that was the 10 year anniversary of Jimmy passing away and so there was a lot of uh, synchronicities that were happening during that time and ended up deciding to come on and work with Brooks and leave the nursery in 2015 to work with them more full-time mm -hmm. to help develop their programs some of their education programs and um, really maintain their site to be their site steward for their gardens and their vineyard. And um, that was a really great time to really get to put a lot of those things I had been studying into practice. Um, concept we run into at Biodynamics is that it's a very heady ideas and concepts and 90% were in our head, but at some point we need to make it concrete and bring it into reality. And that can be a little, little bit of intimidating for people mm -hmm. to think about you know, making these changes, but I was able to hone those skills and had a chance to work with really great people. Um, Claire, who's there, and a great winemaker, Chris Williams, and just the history that he and uh, Brooks had up on the hill <laughs> in Amity. Seeing their old winery to their new winery um, was a great opportunity there. 
Tell me about the your kind of initial impressions as you got into the industry, sort of full time. Full time. Uh, what what was the situation there at Brooks? What did you think you needed to bring to the table, and what what, what kind of already existed? Yeah, you know they had a really great program. They've been certified for a while. I can't remember exactly how long um, when they achieved their initial certification. But I saw that with the growth, and I think it happens in every time of life, that you have this growth and then you kind of have this time of regrouping to you know, understand where the growth's at. And I felt like I was brought in, in some ways, to be a support to these programs that were already in place. But now we, got a, we have a larger winery, we have larger volumes. With the excitement of the tasting room, the tasting room staff was growing and you know, there was a lot of upward growth in those areas. And on the outside, I believe they were just wanting to, you know, maintain and grow uh, a lot of the programs. Uh, you know, I did get to tie in a lot of my landscaping skills I learned in school back there, learning how to work with the irrigation and um, different types of uh, systems that were already in place. Um, but I had a really great time there, met a lot of people in the industry. I got to attend workshops on behalf of Brooks and got to lead workshops at Brooks and made a lot of connections with um, uh, Bree um, was involved and working with Claire and Jess, Jess Pierce and um, Jacob Simbler who worked with me in the gardens there for a while and really just made a lot of um, close connections mm -hmm. that I still keep to this day. As you started to kind of go to those kinds of meetings and meet meet people and see the industry uh, from your perspective, what what was sort of your perspective of the farming practices in Oregon wine at that time? You know, at that time, I, I saw a, I would just say I saw a great you know a striving. You know, a, a lot of folks that were looking for alternatives um, to do things a little bit different. You know, there's. Something that I, I find myself in my role as viticulturalist now in grower relations is like using the phrase with growers that we purchase fruit from is like, at this point, fortunately, grapes are not a commodity. You know, it doesn't get lumped in with the prices that are established in Washington for like corn or soybean or cotton or these other things. The value is directly assessed to your quality of production. And that's something that I see that everybody is striving for. I think about going to the Oregon Wine Symposium that we're looking forward to next week to take our vineyard team or you know working with Oregon State, Patty Skinkis and others and that level of detail focused and the group of camaraderie. I think um, going back to the previous question you know the story of Brooks of whenever Jimmy Brooks did pass away and the amount of people that came together to help keep the keep the brand and the vision going was pretty remarkable and I started kind of seeing that around that time you know that people were there to help each other out you know at the end of the day we're farming a crop that has value once it gets to the loading dock you know once it gets to the scales at the winery so there's a lot of things that can go wrong in the vineyard up until that point mm -hmm. and um, it, I think that that's what I you know really appreciated and I saw that it was kind of growing and it was right on the cusp um, with this all being said, I do want to, as we discussed before the interview, about um, not being too dogmatic, not being too rigid. Like, we can have our ideals, but we don't want the ideals to get in the way of, you know, 
to be ruining friendships or to be creating walls or boundaries for conversation. Um, and that is something I appreciate about the live program, that it's, um, it's not a, all one way or no way. It's a bringing people to the conversation. Um, because if you people have their guards up, if they um, feel like you're coming down on them, then you've lost that opportunity to actually connect. Mm -hmm. And so I was probably very adamantly, you know, like, oh, we should get rid of glyphosate. We should phase out everything. Yet you have to understand what's going to be replacing that. What alternatives are there? And you just can't pull things away without a healthy way to move forward. Mm -hmm. um, sustainability, I had the conversation, and it can be a hot, heated topic of like the economic sustainability. But um, people make decisions based off economics versus what's best for the earth. But at the same time, if you don't sustain your team through the winter, which is, I, I use that analogy a lot in what we're doing, but you know, um, we're in an ag system previous to the maybe farming back in the 20s where if you had a bad year, you might not eat through the winter, you know. Um, we have that ability to grow a crop that we can um, receive value in the future, but it doesn't directly affect the value of that growing season if you're on the vineyard, winery, then marketing side mm -hmm. as well. So, you know, I saw an industry that was very open to different ideas and um, very receptive to, at that time, to, you know, kind of new energy and new impulse, so. What would you, what would you feel like your sort of biggest impact was at Brooks and, and then what was the next, what was your sort of next step? Yeah, you know, I, I think about it a lot. I think the I really appreciated the opportunity I had there to kind of tie in a lot of my native plant passion along with like a landscaping setting and I think that's kind of spilled into a little bit of what's happening at Domain Willamette where you can be really selective and uh, in the landscape trade they have the right plant, the, the right place for the right plant. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to decide that and I think I was able just to think about that in line with planting vineyards now and that an analogy you would have is that you, if a vine is suffering, you don't actually blame the vine. You blame the people that put it in that situation. And in talking some of the, the biodynamics, which I came up with the analogy there was, you know, a plant is directly planted in the soil that it's in. You know, we currently have a computer in our pocket and all these things that are taking our energy away or taking our um, attention. Uh, a plant you put it there, it's planted. It doesn't have distractions. It just watches the sun go by. It watches the moon. It's attached a little bit closer to the cosmos than we are. And so choosing that right place for the right plant is paramount to the success. And so I think at Brooks, I, I got to the spot where, um, you know, we, we had a really good program. We're starting to get some good rhythm of making the preparations on, on the new site and um, training up more of the tasting room staff and other people to understand what it's all about and also put people in the landscapes that could really help and maintain those. And so I think that, um, you know, left Brooks at the end of 2016 uh, with a notion that I felt like I've done a, a good job. I wouldn't say it was a complete job there, but in 2017, I kind of went back to school 
in a lot of ways for myself. Started um, looking at these opportunities I'd had to consult and to um, be able to lead and to guide and to teach other people in the industry that I didn't quite always have whenever you're focused on like one property. You know, you got one garden, one landscape that takes a lot of attention. Um, being able to make wine with Brooks was great. Being able to do some punch downs and sorting fruit and to follow the fruit in the cellar was really remarkable. And I kind of wanted to learn a little bit more about that side of things as well, um, as, along with the vineyards. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that I was less connected, I would say, at Brooks with the vineyard, um, although I was trying to get out there as much as I could just with the way it was uh, being managed. I did a lot of the biodynamic sprays and the treatments, but the day-to-day -day activities, I was, I was busy, you know, on, with other tasks. So I really want to take a deep dive into the morbidoculture side. Mm -hmm. And uh, that led to, I'll just dive into 2017, was I was able to connect with Simon Burr, who's uh, had Mountaintop Vineyard Service and his wife, Melissa Burr at Stoller. Um, and learn a lot more about the actually the farming side of it, you know, and started getting more into the budgets and doing spray programs and understanding these issues that it's easy if you're telling people you should not be spraying these things or doing these things. That's really easy to say. It's another thing when you realize that this is your toolbox, you only have, you know, one drawer out of a four drawer toolbox to use to do these practices. How do you do that actually um, in time? So that first year I got really familiar with driving an under row cultivator, uh, a weed knife that, you know, chops the weeds. And that was a, a funny way that I remember Simon presented it was, you know, you're really into organic. So here, you need to learn how to use this. <laughs> so threw me on a tractor and I drove it for about three weeks straight. And I said, okay, so I finished. Now what do I do? Okay, you go back to where you started and do it again. <laughs> and you start to realize, hey, there's, a reason that would people might go you know use these tools mm -hmm. especially if you're looking at the cost and the hourly cost of what does this cost and so um, what, what's this effect on the bottom line so I kind of did a deep dive there as a consultant um, eventually he had gave me the luxury I was working with uh, Langelo Estates at the time and a few other um, smaller vineyards to kind of help guide um, them through the process of becoming biodynamic certified organic. Um, so working with Janice Pate at Arlen Vineyard and had some really good friends over those years. And um, eventually, 2017, I decided, you know, if I want to guide people, um, in order to be a guide, you need to be able to teach. Um, and to, there's a saying that if you really want to know something, you need to be able to describe it. I believe it's a fourth or fifth grade level. And I realized, I'm in kindergarten in the vineyard, so I can't even match yet. So I did a deep dive into the viticulture side. And actually in 2017, I went through the IOIA organic certification training and also became cert trained as a Demeter inspector. So at that point, I was kind of faced with a opportunity to either become an organic inspector or a Demeter inspector to understand the certification process to understand what are we actually asking these farmers mm -hmm. and I'll be honest I bumped up with something that year that I didn't really expect but it was a um, as an inspector you really can't advise 
an inspector there is to collect data and turn it over to the certification agency. It's a conflict of interest to shift into a consultant type of a role. And um, some certifiers have gotten in trouble with that in the past of where you, you give too much information, you're hand-holding too much. But I saw an industry that was hungry for this and was like, well, maybe there's some people that want to have their hand held, that want to be guided through the process. And I always like to say that kind of what I was telling people was if you want to go through the process, I'll help you get certified, but we're not going to help you find the loopholes. Like we're going to do it and do it with integrity and do it with authenticity because there are ways that you can skirt the issue, but then there's an ethical um, conversation that could be had at that point. It's like, well, what's your intent? Why are you doing this? And so that was kind of a good conversation to have. And I had a questionnaire that was like kind of upfront and some people you're like, eh, maybe we're not a good fit, you know, <laughs> but maybe we are. Mm -hmm. And so that was a really great path in 2017. And I, you know, working for the management company, I had already had at that point close to a decade of experience in the ag industry in Oregon and looking at grapes quite simply as a, another grape, you know, or another, another plant. And not to take anything away from that, but coming from a nursery setting where you're working with 250 different species and each one needed to be treated a little differently, although you're on a larger acreage scale, you start to can look at the vines as, you know, a similar but yet different. Mm -hmm. You know, Chardonnay requires different things than Pinot Noir. Um, Pinot Gris, Riesling, they can be a little more forgiving than Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and, uh, you know, types of issues that you'll, you might encounter. So um, I got some really good experience and to kind of mention that fact of missing the wine industry or the winery side, I made a connection with Simon while working at Langelo with Isabel Meunier. And uh, that year she was looking for an intern to work. And at the end of harvest in a management company, sometimes the work dries up. Once the grapes are harvested, in theory, the vineyard goes to sleep, you know, um, and so you have a little bit of time off time. So that was part of the agreement I had with Simon was that I was able to go from, and with my consulting clients, that I was able to go from farming the vineyards to then working with Isabel in the cellar. And so I had a chance to work that year at Carlton Winemaker Studio and, you know, we shared space up there with Eric Berg and Andrew Rich and, um, you know, getting to know them, Anthony, getting to know them really well that year was really amazing. And it also was that point in my time that I realized this is hard work. This is a lot of work. Um, going from pruning in January all the way through harvest and uh, Isabel does a lot of passage. And so I was doing a lot of the full body punch downs and <laughs> got a good shoulder workout. And uh, so I kind of made a assessment there that, you know, I like growing the grapes a lot and then I hand them over to the professionals. Um, I still have some winemaking experience and background, yet that's not really where my passion is. It was truly with the vineyard and with the teams and with that. And uh, that's kind of what led me to near the end of 2017 when I was rethinking about, you know, consulting for 2018, getting some clients lined up. And um, ironically, that was around that time that Willamette Valley Vineyards had reached out to me and um, my good friend and previous winemaker, Joey Brahim, um, had connected to me about a, you know, opportunity that was here uh, to help cultivate Domain Willamette and to uh, really 
uh, build and establish a biodynamic program from kind of the ground up. So that was what led me to where I'm at now. Well, before we get to that, I know you have uh, your own thing on the side as well, un unconventional farm business and supply. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how that came about and how that sort of fits in with all this. Yeah, you know, it ties back to, um, you know, my friend Nadine, a conversation with that. And, um, you know, if, if we always have hindsight, and so we're able to do things backwards. But I, the consulting business that I have is called unconventional farm supply. And I likened it not so much a slight on people that are conventional farmers, but where do people get to go for information? And um, unfortunately, sometimes consultants can have a bad rap of, you know, somebody that's here to help you, you know, give you a really big bill, <laughs> um, leave you an invoice and say, I'll see you in a month. Um, do this, do this, do this. Okay. And, you know, I'll expect your check in 14 days. Um, that wasn't really the approach that I wanted to have. And I also turned down opportunities I had to consult and like up in, up in Canada or California, because I really do think that you have to know your sense of place. Um, I can't even begin to touch on a California vineyard on what their needs are. You know, I can't imagine the challenges they have with irrigation and water rights and other issues. And so how do you, I can give you the principles and practices to like achieve biodynamics certification, but every farm has its own unique, you know, fingerprint mm -hmm. and you really need to be there and understand it. And so that business that I was really at was just providing education and really trying to provide um, accurate information that would help guide people to success. Mm -hmm. Quite simply, you and uh, the worst thing you want to do is to go down a path and then you realize halfway down it that maybe you shouldn't have done that. Um, you're affecting as a consultant, you know, people's livelihoods. And so if you make a suggestion that they do something and it ends up not working for them, uh, not only does it bad, look bad for me, but it looks bad for biodynamics or organics and it hurts the industry. Mm -hmm. You know, if you put out an inferior product in the competitive Oregon wine market, you know, that's not a good look. Mm -hmm. So I kind of shifted my role as a little bit more of a, I would call it a trusted advisor. And at that point, I kind of shifted towards, you know, let's have an agreement financially that we can agree upon. But if at any time, if you're not happy, you know, or your success isn't there, then we don't have to do that. And for some smaller clients, I would defer payment until we reach a spot that we're happy. You know, like, let's just see if this works, if this is a good fit. Because I don't want you to be like I, that analogy I used of 1988, I tried organics and it didn't work. Well, we hired clay and then, you know, we got powdery mildew and biodynamics doesn't work. You know, it doesn't make sense. That was, to me, that was unacceptable that we would go down that path. So I, I called the business unconventional farm service and supply and it was a dual part. It was a, an accounting or, you know, a, a consulting sorry, of providing a service or activities. And then supply was starting a little small native plant nursery on the side, helping people find organic cover crop seeds, which was a very big issue at that time. And I remember eventually having a conversation with Rebecca Sweet, who's at Buzz Seeds, and she was a live inspector at the time of the challenges. You know, you have an organic certified farm vineyard, you need to find organic seed. Yet that was a hole that wasn't being filled. Mm -hmm. Um, you could go to a, a standard store and, you know, they would not have that option. And I've also had opportunities where I would go to a location 
and ask for something like organic products or other things and kind of be laughed at, you know, because, oh, here's another long-haired idealist coming in here. Um, but I realized if people are asking for it, that's entrepreneurship. You know, if you want to have a business, identify a need, create a, you know, create a supply, meet that demand. And that was kind of a little bit where that went. Mm -hmm. And so I started seeing some good excitement around these ideas of, you know, where could people go to get good advice um, on products, uses, um, tools. Uh, with the time at Mountaintop, I got to see and trial different under-row cultivators. You know, and it's a different approach if you go to a company that sells that tool. They've got the best one, obviously. You know, <laughs> they're there to sell it. But where could you find that community or that collaboration where it's like, I'm not here to sell you something. I'm just here to give you the best information. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the model that I built that business on. And I felt like it went fairly well. And, um, you know, it's something that had been tabled. Uh, the title of unconventional, uh, you know, had a little bit of negative connotation for some people, but it was one that started the conversation. Mm -hmm. What do you mean unconventional farm supply? Well, I'm trying to offer the products that you're not going to be marketed to in other places. You know, we're not here to send you down the route that we're trying to send you down the route that you can be certified. And these are the list of Omri products that you can have. And we're just not even going to have that part of the conversation. If you want to have a conversation about what synthetic chemicals or fertilizers, there's people you can talk to. But I want to be that person that you can talk to that will give you, try to shoot you down the right path. So, yeah. So that was a, a little bit of what led me into the opportunities I had in 2018. Mm. And uh, since then, just because of the job I'm in, I've tabled more of the business and shift, um, shift a little bit away into other kind of enterprises. But it was uh, something that's still there and still could kind of be reinvigorated in time, you know, if I ever, if I ever choose that. So in 2018, when Wamaval Vineyards first approached you, give me an idea of the project as you understood it and sort of what they wanted from you, what, what, what your role was to be. Yeah, that's a great question. It, was, um, it started out truly as a consultant role to help um, establish this property that had been purchased, I believe, middle of 2017 and kind of do that holistic approach of looking at it and really realizing that we've made a commitment to these practices. We want to start from the from the bottom up, and I think that that was um, something that was intriguing to me because you can convert land, um, but you know sometimes it's it takes the momentum and buy-in from the team, and so I had a really great opportunity to work with directly with Joe Ibrahim, um, working with Efren Loeza, who's a vineyard manager of our of our company, and getting to know his brother Miguel getting to know the vineyard workers and as we were you know at that time as i was consulting i had a handful of other clients that i won't get into right now but i was working you know minimal time with willamette valley vineyards and spending more time with other people um, but we hit a spot probably i would say about april or may that um, again it's easy to talk about these things but to actually implement it what could this look like and um, at that time, Willamette Valley Vineyards did not have a viticulturalist. And so my um, skill set that I had gained, and I was currently in 2018 working with Simon as well as consulting, 
you know, and to get more time in with the vineyard team pruning, uh, you know, the, the opportunity arose that I would be able to step into something different um, with Willamette. And so I had a, a good conversation in May with Joe, and he was just kind of laying out what the opportunity could look like. Um, I felt a lot of loyalty, and that was, that was hard for the people that I'd already had on the journey. Mm-hmm. And luckily, we were able to work out a deal where when I started in June, I was actually able to keep on the clients that I had had and keep them through the end of the year. So it was a, it was a very important part for me to think about the community component because you know, frankly, when I moved from Oregon, I knew from Alabama to Oregon, I knew two people in this town. And I had kind of cultivated a really remarkable community in the wine industry and, and not mm-hmm. around me in the McMinnville area. So that was an important step that I took, you know, then to um, think about what impact that would make to work for a large company um, with a lot of challenges of a lot of acres and how could we not just do ju- do a great job at this one property, but how can we scale this up? And to me, that was kind of the newest challenge that I was stepping into at that point. And so the scope of it was that we will knew that we wanted to have a biodynamic vineyard, that um, it was kind of the trajectory that we were starting to <clears throat> at least put put this property on, that we kind of felt like that was the next step for the sustainability efforts mm-hmm. that the company was making. And so I was brought in to really get this property kind of in good shape. And then my initial goal as well was to kind of shift this into like a larger larger program that we could scale up. So before we talk about scale, which I think is always so interesting when it comes to biodynamics, tell me about biggest initial challenges, both uh, from a sort of personnel perspective and from a from a landscape perspective. What what were the biggest things you were walking into that you saw as kind of the initial <clears throat> initial steps you had to take? Yeah. So after the land was purchased, you know, and it was had been fairly, um, it was a production vineyard at that time when we purchased it. And the biggest thing that I like to stress is kind of like the three three phrases of it is, uh, you know, you want to start with observation. Obviously, what are you seeing? And um, next, you kind of want to think about like your what the intention is. So you're first off, you're just observing, spending some time on the land, observing it, what your intention is, what the goal. And then, you know, then you can kind of tap in a little bit at that point with like what intuition is. And intuition is something that I think a lot of winemakers really do well, mm-hmm. that they just know, oh, it's time to rack or it's not, or they make these choices. And I attribute like intuition is that gut feeling that you have, you know, that we're, we're combining the head, heart, and the mind here. And the, the gut instinct is that feeling of that kind of knowing. Uh, and I've had experiences with that in the nursery setting where you're walking past a greenhouse and you walk by and you feel like something's off. Like there's something a little bit wrong and then you realize that a breaker had flipped and indeed those plants weren't getting irrigation. You know, you're walking through a vineyard and kind of start to see through the observation and the scouting, you know, what, these are really large canes. What was the production last year? You can almost start to see like, you know, people do pruning weights to kind of determine um, what your yield might be in the future. So each one of those are really important. So I think coming onto the property was like, Let's make sure we have the right mindset first. Again, what's our intent? Mm-hmm. 
what are we doing here? <laughs> what got us out of bed in the morning? You know, like, why do we choose to do this? And so when you're walking it, what we originally saw was that we had a lot of plastic under the vines, which was the old school of using the, the black plastic. And because I was fresh out of organic certification training, that was the first step that in organics, you can use black mulch or the plastic mulch, but you can't leave the ground covered year round. You can use it temporarily, but then you have to pull it up. You need to not inhibit airflow and that air exchange for the soil. Sure, it keeps the weeds down, but what else is being affected? And so I was really stressing that, that what's this ripple effect that we have? What are we doing? And I might use it as something that I've said before, uh, if you're familiar with the seven generation rule that they use, a, it's a kind of a Native American philosophy, and we used it a lot in like ecology work, but it's let the decision that you make today take into account seven generations going forward. And with that said, with this as the Oregon wine history, sometimes in discussing and wrapping our mind around it, I actually look at it like we're at the halfway point. So let's look backwards for three and a half generations and look at what we've learned, what we've maybe learned, what we don't need to do. And let's take that looking three and a half generations going forward. Um, it's given me a new life perspective. I have a 10 month old son at home right now. And so I think about like the legacy and what the wine industry legacy is gonna be for his generation and the next generation as we're looking forward. Um, but the reason I say that was that, you know, the plastic mulch worked well for a while, but then if we're looking for certification to go organic and Demeter biodynamic certification, we have to do these steps. And so that was my first kind of interaction with the vineyard team um, for the Willamette Valley vineyards. And I can say, I don't think they liked me in the first few months because <laughs> I was a consultant. I would give them a list of things to do, get this done. I'll see you guys in March. <laughs> Um, but I do know that year we hauled about four dumpster loads of plastic out of the vineyard at a stationary dumpster. A lot of work, a lot of labor. And you kind of start to look at that ripple effect of that time savings 15 years ago cost us a lot of time now. With inflation, with everything else, it's a lot of money now. So uh, what can we not delay doing now that we put off till tomorrow? and? That's a thing we all deal with in our personal lives, but that's something on farming, you know, let's take the right steps now, uh, which will allow things to kind of rebound on this property. So those were some of the first things, you know, adjusting, you know, the spray program. Well, Lamont Valley Vineyards has had experience with organic certified properties. Uh, the main estate I know down in Turner for a few years was. Um, and so the vineyard team, the more I talked to them, the more they didn't have to really be taught. They work with intuition every day. Pruning a grapevine, they can go so fast, a lot faster than I ever could, because they know where the right cuts are going to be made, you know, and so they they do say in farming in general, especially organic farming, like the best fertilizer is a farmer's footsteps. You know, you can't be an absentee um, farmer that well, because you're not going to have that connection with your land. And so I found out working with the vineyard team, Efren and his brother, you know, doing some of the initial sprays that we were hand stirring. You, we had a really great conversation and found a great meditative time and, a, you know, f I think formed a good bond and friendship over that. So um, I came on full time as a viticulturist at the end of June, right around the summer solstice that year of 2018. And then just kind of that helped set the path forward. 
So uh, as you've seen the progress here, where what are what are the sort of the milestones for you, and have you sort of have how how have you seen buy-in happen along with those milestones? Yeah, you know, as I was telling somebody recently, the first year generally when you do a conversion, it's it's going to be fairly okay. Um, the second year is usually when you kind of have your confidence shaken, and that definitely happened here where. Um, if you're looking at the notion of like systemic fungicides and, um, and herbicides and different types of things like that, you kind of, it's a little bit of like a drug withdrawal for the land. It had been so used and been so propped up by these fertilizers and these other tools that you have a little bit of a collapse. But as we know, grapevines are very resilient. They're never going to fully collapse. If you can get through that initial two year, things will start to gradually get better. And that's the... The step that I tell people that, um, you know, if you can get through the discomfort of the first few years, that's sometimes when people will lose confidence, that in theory, every year is going to be a little bit better than the last. And it is something that we try, especially in farming, you know, you never want, you want to avoid stasis. You don't want to be stagnant. Mm -hmm. uh, the vines are growing. We're growing as humans. Our skills are growing individually in whatever we're doing in life, hopefully. And so... The skill set, the experience, the, the land, you know, things are going to gradually improve. And that's something that we strive for. And so you start to see that, but every year has its own challenges. We pretend that we're in control, but we realize year after year that we're not. We're just kind of more trying to work with the natural processes Mother Nature gives us and kind of guide is not even the expression, but we're trying to allow what's going to happen and we're adapting to those situations. So... You know, I think that, to your question, uh, it's been really great to see the buy-in, I think, from the team, as well as also with staffing changes and turnovers, there's that kind of reteaching, retooling, these are things that we do, or this is what I heard that we're doing, are we doing, you know. And so that the turnover's been a little challenging, and, you know, loss of, um, through COVID, um, you know, you have people that, and I'm sure that happens in every field. You get a really great tractor driver that then decides to do something else. Mm -hmm. So then you tr train the new tractor driver. And um, we've made some investments here with um, stirring machines and other um, things that will help us get the sprays on better. Uh, we built compost here on site and it was really involving our viticulture technician at the time to really help hold a lot of the, that big picture. And, um, you know, use the expression of planting a seed, you know, in the team's mind and kind of allowing them to come up with solutions. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, here's a problem. Let's think about this. We don't have to fix it right now. Let's sit with this and see what comes up with and run it through those observation and intention and intuition. So, um, you know, managing a vineyard is a challenge. Managing a vineyard in a construction site uh, has been a little bit of a challenge as well when you got different people that are have their different goals on the property, but it feels really good going into 2023 that, you know, majority of the construction is complete and we can get a little more rhythm back in the vineyard and kind of build the program back up mm -hmm. to where, where it was at one point. So, so you mentioned, we talked about scale a bit earlier on obviously Wyoming Valley Vineyard zones, a lot of vineyards, a lot of parts of the state. So with the project here, what is the role you're playing in the other vineyards in the, in, in, within the portfolio 
and sort of what do you see as sort of long-term, short-term, long-term goals with that? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's something that um, was a little concerned whenever I did take the job, was realizing how can we scale this up? You know, and I think the uh, common concern that we always have in quality versus quantity, you know, and ideally you're going to have this threshold and you're going to meet in the middle and you've hit that sweet spot. And you kind of got to look at these areas that you might be a little too hyper-focused on quality and you made some fantastic wine, but you made 100 cases of it and then it sells out quickly and then you should have maybe scaled up. You know, and then the, the quality, quantity is where you have so much volume that how can we do this and how can we do it well? Do we have enough space? Do we have enough fermenters, the tanks? And a lot of the winery challenges that a lot of people, I think, ran into in 2022 <laughs> with the large yields that we saw across the valley and across the state. And so I think the practices and the principles that we try to put in of good stewardship of the land, you know, really working with the soil health, the cover crops, really looking at like the intentionality of like striving not to overcrop yet also allowing us to have enough crop that we can make the you know make our goals mm -hmm. um, and I think that really striving to be authentic with like being able to tell that story has been really important to me and I think that's where I don't want us to scale up too too fast to really hit that spot where you your quality starts to suffer mm -hmm. And not that it would indirectly, but as we have experienced over the past couple of years, there's a lot of things out of our control that can affect the quality. And so what are we to, you know, kind of help guide that process? Mm -hmm. And so I think really I've going back to kind of the consultants or that trusted advisor roots of like, how can I really help educate the team to be able to feel confident to make these decisions, you know, without me fully trying to control or micromanage. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's, uh, I think that's the ultimate goal, you know, this time we have on life can be short as I learned with Jimmy Brooks and what can we instill that can be carried on beyond, mm -hmm. you know, where we're at. So I think that it's not something I've quite figured out yet, of uh, the quality and uh, quantity threshold. Um, but I do think with the acres and the ability that we have at Willamette with as you mentioned, the vineyards in the portfolio and the different labels and the brands and our owners and our really great hospitality team, this place at Domain Willamette that we can really showcase and share some of that. So um, one thing I want to touch on, and I mentioned to you before the interview is, you know, we have our vineyards over in the Walla Walla area and in the Rocks District. And that's been really great to see these other operations outside of the Willamette Valley as well as doing the majority of the grower relations for Willamette and being able to visit 20 or 30 different sites every year mm -hmm. and see how they're doing it has given me a wider perspective and also a deeper respect that, you know, farming in itself is very challenging. It's, it's pushed me away from the dogma that we touch on that's a, you don't want to fall into because you've got to realize that everybody's doing the best they can with where they're at. Mm -hmm. And we're all faced with these razor thin margins and these also these very impactful decisions that must be made through the growing season. Mm -hmm. Should we leaf pull? Should we not? Do we need to hedge? Do we not? Did we do this spray early enough or not? You know, um, did we, you have that with trying to tie in the biodynamic rhythms and trying to work with the preparations, you know, to building the compost. 
did we get the cover crop planted in time? Did we not? You know, um, how bad are the gophers going to be next year? How bad were they last year? You know, there's so many variables that we we have to try to control. Mm -hmm. And when, at the end of the day, we just have to make a decision, feel confident, and uh, do what we can the next year mm -hmm. and learn every year. So I um, hope that someone answered your question. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, tell me about finding, discovering that role for yourself and f kind of finding your way into, in, in a place that has so many different moving parts. Yeah. Mentioning that I'm from Alabama, people know I went to school for horticulture, but I go home and, oh, so what are you doing in Oregon? You know, first is like, well, when are you moving back? So, well, let's, we'll talk about that next time. Um, <laughs> The other's like, well, what are you, so what are you doing out there? It's like, well, I'm the viticulturist for Willamette Valley Vineyards. Um, first off, they'll usually pronounce Willamette wrong. <laughs> and then they, and I was, they'll nod their heads like, oh yeah, I've heard about that. You know, it's like, so yeah, so do you know what a viticulturalist is? And they say, absolutely not. So the best way I learned to describe it, which I found later after many conversations was somebody described viticulture as the art, science, and business of growing grapes for wine production. So going back a little bit to my early schooling, you know, with basically having a minor in business, going through the macro, microeconomics, business law, business ethics, started realizing that that's a very important part. Um, and I, I kind of liken that to a three-legged stool that we're kind of keeping balanced in a viticultural program of anywhere. So the art, the science, and the business. Um, you know, the business is a beautiful thing because I've realized when I managed a native plant nursery, it doesn't matter how artful I was, how beautiful these plants are that I grew. If there was no market, I would not, how would I get through the winter? So that's an important part with sales and these other systems in the wine industry. So I kind of work some with sales, do some sales things. Um, the art side, that's totally our vineyard stewards. You know, they're the ones that spend their time in the vineyard day in and day out. They live in the vines during the growing season. They travel in the winter and then come back ready to go for pruning. And so working with the art has been an expression that like I really, it's probably what brings me the, the most value, working side by side with them in the vineyard. Um, but also looking at these ways, like can we tweak it a little bit? What's this? Um, I think it's a skilled art when you drive by these vineyards that you see management companies are managing and they look so pristine. So, I mean, those are the postcards people think about for Oregon. And that in itself is art. You know, the what people see outside the Willamette Valley is like, wow, Oregon's beautiful. I want to visit. I want to go, I want to go to that location. And so that's kind of the other part. And the, the science is a little bit of a blending and it's a little bit of a, not gonna lie, felt a little bit like a, the imposter syndrome of like, am I qualified for this? There's so many more people that have years and years of viticulture experience. But I had to simplify it to say like, you know, this is a living plant that frankly grows itself. We're fighting it a lot of the year <laughs> with hedging it, with keeping it back. This isn't one that we are like coaxing out of the ground. <laughs> it shoots out rapidly in the amount of growth you can see. So. How do we manage that? That gets back to the art side of working with the vineyard team. And do we have the people, do we have the right people in the right position that can actually manage it? So then we can get to that spot that we have a crop that supports the business side. So 
coming in at Viticulturalist in June of 2018, I was felt, mentioned the imposter syndrome. I had this naiveness that like, oh, this is okay, you know, and it felt like every week Willamette was showing me another vineyard in the portfolio. I, I knew a grasp and I'd seen on paper, but when you're standing in the middle of Ingram Estate Vineyard, which is uh, on top of Elton Vineyard, and it's about 200 acres, um, and it's very close to Brooks Winery, which is right at the roads, and you're looking at, okay, it's one thing to farm five acres, 10 acres, very intentionally, how do we do this here? And so that was um, one of my wake-up calls I had, and I likened it, whether it's a sports analogy of football or football with the vineyard team, but it was like I came in at halftime a head coach, <laughs> and I said, okay, what's the score and who's our players? You know, And that was what I had to learn really rapidly that first year. But I had a really great team with Joe Ibrahim and Gabby Prefontaine, um, who were the winemakers at Willamette, that kind of really held my hand in working with Efren. And so I was able to pick up all the grower contracts, go out and start to visit other people in the industry, and really make um, 2018 harvest go well. And then grew on that for 2019, which was probably one of the, you know, we didn't realize how good we had it in 2019 of how good of a year that was compared to the 2020 issues with the wildfires and uh, 2021 from early season freezes to heat domes and other challenges. Um, so the kind of, I was a trial by fire for sure. And it, it really got me out of my comfort zone and made me realize, hey, I can, I can do big things. You know, I don't have to think, I don't have to stay small. I can, I can grow and learn and really doing that while holding the visions or when I would consult, I would speak about, you're looking through the lens of biodynamics or organics. And it's literally like you're putting on glasses and you realize looking through it and say, this is the only thing I can see. And it's a hard thing if you've had 20 years of experience in one way to try to learn that. But if you can kind of come to it with a little bit of the beginner's mind, let me look at this as a true beginner. And let me just say, you know, we don't have these tools. You know, we can't manage a landscape using traditional um, herbicides. So how do we do that? And then posing that question with your team, with a group of people, it's not just me making that decision. We're now tapping into the collective, the, con the collective consciousness around. And then if you have some other connections in the industry or, you know, native plant enthusiasts or different uh, growers meetings, I got to give a shout out to Rob at Limelson. He started this really great organic viticulture group. And um, hearing Die Crisp at the last meeting say that, that he's been waiting for years, he's never had an opportunity to sit around and have discussions with folks that are, the whole conversations around organic viticulture. And so can't get away from the fact that farming can be isolating. Mm -hmm. There are days that I uh, don't speak a lot of English and it's only poorly done Spanish, <laughs> El Espanol, but I am trying to learn more daily. Um, but we all are at our estates or vineyards and we're all isolated. Mm -hmm. But it takes this kind of collection to come together and share these ideas, share what's working, what's not. And that's I know we'll talk about it later, but that I do think that's the beauty of the wine industry here, that we are all a um, trying to do the best we can. You know, there's competition, obviously, yet at the same time, we all are faced with the same challenges. And I think as an industry, 
that collaboration is important, especially if we want, we want to continue to put ourselves on the map in these other more prominent wine regions traditionally. You mentioned earlier, you talked about the sort of the three stages uh, in a venue, observation, um, intention, and then intuition. Tell me about getting to know a space, and we'll just, we can use this space as sort of a, a sure. specific example. How do you get to know it? How long does it take? And, and what are some of the kind of biggest things you're looking for when it comes to sort of overall site awareness? Yeah, it's a great, great question. It's something actually that came up recently. I was talking with Walt McGaffey of OSU, who ironically went to Auburn at one point. We may realized a connection there. Um, but he said that it takes seven years on a piece of property to really be, in his words, be a good viticulturalist. And it takes a little bit out of like a permaculture concept that they say that before you make any large land adjustments, you need to know the property through all four seasons. They say that with relationships, they say that in other things, <laughs> the saying. But I think that it's very relevant because you, you don't really know where you might have erosion until we get the winter rains. You don't know where you're gonna have your um, really either dry spots or spots of your property that may or may not, you know, they may have rocks below the surface. So you create these hot spots, these heat zones or different things and so I think Again, we, we strive for the ideal, but we don't let it get be the enemy of the good. You know, that's the ideal, that you could sit there and observe for a whole year before you touch it. But we're an industry that's growing rapidly. So how do we have to go take those assessments? And I do think <clears throat> forming a good group of teams, whether it be a trusted advisor, consultants, you know, people that specialize. Um, a thing, an issue I've seen with some biodynamic farms, and I've had it myself, is that you feel like you've got to do everything. You want to be so self-reliant that, like, I don't even want to talk to my neighbor, you know. <laughs> but I use the analogy that Rudolf Steiner gave back in the day that, uh, you know, a farm should be a closed organism. And I, I believe the number I heard was that when he gave those lectures and said that line, uh, he was giving it at a farm that was around 7,000 hectares. So 2.2 you know, acres per hectare. We're talking 15,000 acres. So could you look at your farm organism, the collective again, as an AVA, as a watershed, you know, as a hillside, the southwestern, eastern, eastern hillside of the Eola Hills? Could you look at that as your, you know, this neighbor has cows, this neighbor has sheep, this, this person has this. Could we work out a deal, you know? And that was what I was trying to put into place at Brooks and again, trying to do here because I realized without the systems in place, you don't have the support to build a foundation off of. And so how do we do that? How can we bring animals onto the property and how do we make sure that they don't get in the way of the guest or that the guests, you know, are not in the way of the animals? And um, how do we do our um, tractor work in a time that we've, you know, got traffic coming. How does that not interfere? And so these are that, that I think that for this property in itself, it's, it's gone through a transformation. It's gone through a bit of wounding with the development work, but now we're at the part where we allow things to settle. Mm -hmm. uh, and in biodynamics, uh, even in stirring the preparations, we work with the natural systems of uh, one is polarity. One is like rhythm and chaos. And so, you know, construction sites are inherently chaotic. 
a lot of moving parts, a lot of things that seem out of control. That's settling and now we're starting to find the rhythm again. And so that's what I'm really hoping for here and I think that development work can be kind of messy. You know, you're having to remove boulders, you're trying to do these types of tasks to get the site prepped. But then you get the vines in the ground and you can kind of feel like, okay, now we're getting back to that um, process. So I think um, to that, I feel like still coming at it with a beginner's mind and realizing that we don't know everything and every year is a little different. And so walking with some humility there, <laughs> that I think that's what we're going to be facing. And now on this property specifically, we have a, a land steward that lives on the property that will be helping in the vineyard, but will also be helping more with the landscapes. Um, we've created a nice opportunity here that the vineyard team wants to come work here mm -hmm. at this property because it is kind of a little different. It's not your standard um, operating procedures. So that's been pretty cool and we're doing really neat stuff with native plants and um, really unique seed diversity in the vineyard row um, that we're starting to really key out. and. Um, we really want to get people that are passionate to come work on this property and with our team. So, along that note, you had mentioned uh, before we started the recording, you mentioned sort of the tragedy that struck last year and, and sort of what's come out of that. So, tell us a little bit about that and sort of uh, how that has affected your work and, and sort of future plans. Yeah, thank you, Rich. No, it's a it's a challenging topic anytime that we deal with tragedies and. Um, yeah, unfortunately in 2022, my viticultural assistant, Stephanie Woolley, um, passed away in a car accident. And she had been my summer intern from 2018. So, you know, we had a lot of camaraderie, a lot of experience, and she was somebody that was my right-hand person of helping me really develop the biodynamic programs, was helping me with the certification components, helping me collect data for live, do crop estimates, do do all the things that I needed because at this scale, you know, and trying to bring the quality that I strive for, um, I needed a lot of help, you know? And so she, she was that person, but um, she was a Oregon State student and was on the verge of graduating, which makes it even more tragic. Um, but I will say that Oregon State uh, has given her an honorary degree from there and uh, Willamette Valley Vineyards and others have been contributing to a scholarship fund. That more will come out in time, but we've, um, we're going to be given $1,000 a year to the scholarship fund in perpetuity in her honor. Um, she personally made an impact on this property, and there's a lot of things that I will highlight in time. Uh, down by the lower wine shop that you see right off 99 is a native hedgerow that had been established years ago and she had been expanding it every year. And she actually had labeled every plant down there. It still has her tags. And so we're gonna kind of probably commiserate, uh, commemorate her with something down there um, that we hope to keep expanding and keep enhancing. You know, I mentioned that with the native plants and planting a vineyard, planting a tree, planting anything. That's a little piece of legacy that you're leaving. And she was just really well loved by the vineyard team and she's definitely missed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and I think um, it's definitely given me a perspective of, again, how short life is and what we need to um, not take anything for granted. It also has shown like how challenging it is to find really good help. Um, 
people that are passionate. And I ask that question and I, I do ask that to um, students. I was able to teach a class last spring at Chemeketa for organic and biodynamic viticulture, which was pretty remarkable. And was able to have Stephanie come shadow parts of the class. As an Oregon State student, she would come at night to come learn, um, you know, what what was going on and then to attend field trips. And the class really appreciated her being there. But I started the class with asking people, why did you get out of bed today? What, what's, what motivated you? You know, and I ask our vendor team that occasionally. Like, yes, we do need money, but there's lots of ways you can make money. So why are you here? And um, I noticed as we approached wine harvest, they were a little shorthanded at the winery. Hey, would you guys like to go work in the winery? And they're like, eh, not really. Like we, they liked working outside. That's just what a lot of our team loved to do. And so finding some that can maybe do that overlap, that want to work in the vineyard and want to work in the winery. I think that's a, a next evolution that can really have that buy-in. Um, look at these programs, UC Davis, others, viticulture and enology. Sometimes it's not, it's, it's lumped in together, yet you have the specialized side of going into viticulture and or enology. So um, often people, once they're in the work field, they find themselves specialized. And so, you know, we want to find people that are passionate. And that was a, one thing I'll say about Stephanie, that she had enthusiasm. Whether it was hot weathers or whatnot, she would be out there willing to do the task. And that was contagious for our team. Mm -hmm. And I think even for me, it kept me, kept me motivated through the really challenging times. Mm -hmm. So she'll be missed, and I hope we can do the best we can to honor her legacy. Um, that I know for a fact our wines would not be as good without, without her impact. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. uh, so sort of one last sort of question before we get into kind of a bigger scale thing. I'm, I'm curious, uh, you obviously have talked about 2020 and, and the challenges of 2020 and of 2021. So tell me about biggest takeaways from years like 2020 and 2021 with the smoky harvest and then the heat dome and the early season, late season freeze. Um, what do you take away from that and what, what does it sort of help you with as you kind of look to the future of this site? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, going back to 2020, and I can speak primarily on just like the physical toll that, you know, it took on everybody and the emotional toll besides the wine quality, which I think in so many ways turned out to be a lot better than a lot of people expected um, because I think perception is something that we have to work with very delicately in this industry um, because a lot of things can hinge on perception. Mm -hmm. You know, even wine quality, and I say that with... Um, I may like a wine, but you perceive it to be a good wine. And so even there we found a little bit of difference. And so we definitely don't want to give off the impression of, or the perception that, you know, it was a bad year because it wasn't. It was a challenging year. And I think it was just the uncertainty that we all experienced in no matter what part of the state you were in. And, um, you know, I'll just go back to my viticulture assistant, Stephanie. She lived over in Lyons, Oregon, which was over well east of Salem, and they were in like that code three evacuation. And during the middle of harvest, when we were trying to navigate everything, there was about 72 hours we could not get in touch with her because she was part of the evacuation in towers. And so we're trying to go to work every day and figure out how we can harvest through, you know, and checking air quality while my assistant is missing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we don't know her status and where we're at and so there was a lot of strain on the vineyard teams um, there was a lot of challenges where 
you know, the vineyard team had worked all year on this crop. They don't want to let it go to waste. They want to harvest it. So we had to work with that of saying, you know, we're not picking, you know, the quality is, the air quality is not good, stay home. But uh, even if you were anywhere, you know, there wasn't a lot of good air quality anywhere um, for us for a little bit of time. So, uh, you know, we navigated that and made it and it was a, you know, a great vintage. And the one thing that was kind of lost was we were slightly nervous when the fire started because that weekend was supposed to be very, very hot which did contribute to the fires getting spread, but we were worried about what are three days of 100 degree temperature gonna affect the grapes? Are we gonna have shriveling? Are we gonna, you know, have a situation? Ended up that we had a good high enough cover that we were able to, you know, moderate the temperatures. Um, but that year was a challenge. And then I think the winter of 2021, we had the freeze and the ice storm, which, um, it's ironic living in McMinnville because we're fairly well protected, but in the old hills, they lose power for 10 days or a lot of our vineyard sites have a lot of trees down, a lot of broken deer fences. And so there's quite a lot of cleanup that happened after that. Um, but you start to see the weather systems, the climate getting a bit more chaotic. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think what comes out of those years was that resiliency, much like I stated when I took the position, I was a little bit overwhelmed obviously. Um, you never really realize how resilient you are till you get through the catastrophe. And I think with the heat dome in 2021, <clears throat> which was a, a bit of a challenge that year in June, where it was a remar un, you know, remarkable heat wave that I found, my, found myself trying to go to my scientific brain when I was asked at a budget meeting. So what's this weather gonna to do to the grapes? And I started trying to explain scientifically what's gonna shut down and the stomatas are gonna close and, you know, and I just said, frankly, I don't know, you know? <laughs> I don't know, I don't think anybody really knows. We're gonna do the best we can, we're gonna irrigate where we can, we're gonna be as prepared and really try to build in the resilience into our system. And so I, I'm pretty proud of like the way that we do farm and that we're, we're wanting the grapes to be self-sufficient. They need to be resilient. You know, we'll irrigate some initially to get them established, but then we pull that because we want the roots to find their way downwards. Um, and so luckily our vineyards did okay. You know, that the heat dome hit during a time where the vine or the grapes were at a spot where they would not be affected. So, um, but then you realize that the buds and the fruit Avail or the, the fruitfulness is formed in June of the previous year for the following vintage. So we were very anxious and nervous again for 2022. What does this mean? Did all the uh, buds that were below surface get torched? Or are we gonna have a low year? Are we gonna have bad year? Um, in 2021, we also had the rain during um, bloom, which was the challenging to have the rain during bloom than the following um, heat dome that just really threw us through a boomerang uh, or a, a pinball machine of challenges. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that vintage turned out well. At that point, I'd say the 2021 vintage was the one that I was uh, probably the most successful with. Um, I felt the most confident with the fruit quality. It was probably one of the best vintages I'd had a hand in because although all the early season chaos things kind of came out, the Vines kind of ironically with the rain had cropped itself to like a, a good crop level where we weren't overcropped. And so it gave us a little more confidence going into the next vintage. Mm -hmm. 
So. So I want to pull back a little bit and kind of look at the industry a bit more kind of in general. Tell me about uh, changes you've seen in Oregon wine as sure. you've been a part of it, um, particularly on the biodynamic and sort of the viticulture side, but mm-hmm. in any other realm as well. What does the industry look like to you now as we kick off 2023? Yeah, so, you know, in my time in the industry, we'll go back to even like 2012, you know, I saw a lot of uh, camaraderie, a lot of friendships, deep friendships, and I, you know, do see a little bit more of the competitiveness that's coming in and a little bit more of consolidations of outfits. Um, You know, there's obviously some big, big money that have came into the scene and, you know, sometimes call them resource extractors that are taking the valuable product we have in Oregon and taking the profits and sending them elsewhere um, out of, out of our communities. Um, But at the same time, that does provide a lot of jobs and a lot of growth to our area. And so I think, you know, starting on the larger scale and I get to interact with a lot of growers ourselves and buy fruit and purchase um, for to meet our help us meet our demands where our states aren't quite there yet. Um, I, I see, you know, a lot of larger outfits that are kind of snatching up a lot of things. And I see some smaller farms possibly, you know, getting lost in some of that, but I also see an opportunity for like a collective type of a thing where, you know, you could talk to three or four growers and this has happened for us with um, some of our growers out of the Eugene area that they all work together. They share picking bins, they share hauling, maybe put the same load on the same truck and can kind of work that way. Mm-hmm. And so on the organic and uh, biodynamic front, I see a lot of growth happened in 2018 when they, the Biodynamic Association hosted their work their major event in the Portland area. Um, and with that kind of rhythm and chaos that I talked about, there was a little bit of chaotic time for the organizations and they're kind of coming back into a rhythm and uh, the Biodynamic Demeter Alliance is getting some good momentum in the state. The, uh, I believe it's the executive director lives down actually in the Ashland area. And I think they're gonna have a presence at the Oregon Wine Symposium, which is really good. This kind of unification of getting back to certification in the biodynamic side of the education component and Demeter, which is the inspection. Mm-hmm. And I think they have a great way to complement each other. And uh, the Oregon Biodynamic Group spur- spilled into a group that was started in 2019 with a few folks in the industry and myself um, from Johan and uh, Soder and other connections, a little bit like out of the conversation piece of how do we get together, have these good conversations about organic biodynamic farming. And we call it the North Valley Group. And I run an email list that we send out. It's a little subset of the Oregon Biodynamic Group. And I think creating more of these community activities, these workshops, an open house per se, a vineyard tour, preparation making days. That was momentum we had before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of fractured everything. We realized this group does better when they meet in person, not over Zoom, because we're all farmers, we're all busy, we rarely find a time we can coordinate, but if we can get together over coffee or a glass of wine, that worked out better. Um, But uh, that's been a unique group, it's about 85 people on the email list right now. And I think that after everything is, the dust is settled, this kind of regrouping and getting this community together again can be a really, um, productive thing. Mm-hmm. So 
I, I see that there's going to be more opportunities for vendors to be certified. Uh, ways I hear that they're going to streamline some of the process to make it less cost inhibitive and easier and as well be able to provide that education. And um, that comes with the regional groups of that model to say, you know, you're having some problems. You're not isolated on an island. Call these people. See if you guys can come to a solution. And I think that's will be the next area. Mm-hmm. What else do you see as you look ahead for the Oregon wine industry? You know, I see um, I see a lot of growth, and I my hope is that it can be a sustainable growth. That we have uh, getting back to my how I started in the native plant world, you know, and that talking about the precious oak um, savannas and oak woodlands that we have. You know, I would hate to see more of those removed for vineyards. Um, I think there's a lot of ground opportunities, and you, you touched on earlier for like this site that um, we we got we thought we were going to get hit with a little bit of frost because it was lower elevation, and we, we did get affected some, but it was not as bad as we thought. Mm-hmm. And I think finding these site specifics that um, as people are planting vineyards, you know, we, it's always been the notion that we need to plant up on the hill, and I, I think that that's still that's still very important to look for, but a lot of those parcels are being already purchased or, you know. Um, and so I think the industry in itself is, is growing at a rate that's uh, sustainable right now, but we just need to make sure that it doesn't get into the supply demand type scenario where um, the farmers are, you know, not getting the value out of their fruit because there's so much supply. Mm-hmm. and. Um, the demand I think will be there with other folks that are developing new wineries and you know branching out and growing their brands and I think at Willamette Valley Vineyards we're looking at that trajectory of you know planting vineyards to support our growth Mm -hmm. um, as well as support the um, other tasting locations that we've opened up and just to make sure that we have enough for our um, our owners and our enthusiasts that we have on site and so I see it getting slightly more competitive. I hope we don't lose the community feel that it's kind of felt um, that I've appreciated, but we'll see, you know. What about as you look ahead for yourself? Uh, what are some of the things you're looking looking forward to both here at Willamette Valley beyond that? Um, and are there sort of, sort of projects, goals that you have in mind? Yeah, you know, I think for myself, I've done, um, especially having a a child, it gives you a different perspective of what's important, you know, and thinking about trying to leave a healthy legacy, if you will. Um, And so, I, you know, I'm I'm happy, very happy with Willamette, and I think the way that we've been uh, developing the vineyards and building out the teams, I think that we're in the same challenge as a lot of folks of finding the right team and getting the right people in the right positions to support that you know, to build that foundation. Um, you know, doing work with my wife around flowers and cut flowers is something that's uh, been intriguing me for a while. And uh, going always back to that kind of ethic I have of like, can we do this organically? Can we look at doing it the most land ethical way that we can? Um, still looking at that challenge. And for this site in particular, you know, in the upcoming years, uh, we want to develop some food gardens. We want to find a way to incorporate animals have maybe a cut flower garden here on site that we can showcase growing things biodynamically and really kind of have this property be a teaching component. I mentioned that I taught a class at Chemeketa and um, jumping back a little bit, um, 
and my mother actually she passed away in the 20 middle of the 2019 harvest but she was a kindergarten teacher back in the day and so I feel like I've kind of channeled some of that of thinking about how to teach how to educate and so um, I'm really hoping that this property here can be showcased not just for the vineyard itself and the wines but also showcased for the plant selections that we have and can tap in with these other interests that people may have you know not everybody that comes in the Oregon wine industry is overly passionate and initially about wine usually they find that but like where are these again where are these things that make people are passionate about and I think this property can highlight a lot of that and I think through the you know I think teaching is a big component getting the right people in place and building a team um, but I do have ambitions and a lot of different kind of areas and I'm just kind of trying to refine that and what that means to have a family now and not just can't just travel the world like I maybe thought I could at one time in my life um, but what it looks like to put down roots in this valley um, serious roots in this valley and then kind of build from there so yeah I'm looking forward to a easy 2023 growing season without any incredible weather catastrophes or chaos or tragedies and just really able to kind of put uh, you know this will be my fifth year and going into my sixth vintage so really looking at what this looks like to get the best grapes we can all right that's all the questions that I have for you is there yeah. anything we didn't cover that we should have covered anything I didn't ask that I should have asked you know it's the first time I've done something like this so it's uh, I don't have a lot more there's probably more I could talk about and drop a lot of names you know I have just so many friends that I just really lean on that uh, you know get you through like the hard times mm -hmm. and so that's been something that I think as we're hope, hopefully going to open up some more things here and get some more people involved because everybody has said they oh I just drive by I want to stop by and see it mm -hmm. you know and I felt like it was still a work in progress and getting over that um, things don't have to be perfect yet because we are building we are growing and so I do want to bring some more people up and showcase what we've been working for. And um, yeah, no, I think you said that you've been doing this, what, 11 years? Mm -hmm. So how many interviews have you guys done? Almost 700 now in the collection. Almost 700. Yeah, so we've done like 600 of ourselves, something like that. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. Well, I will say I did bring these. It was kind of funny last night as I was thinking about preparing in this wine history. And I use that analogy of looking back, but I have these books that you guys, I'm sure, have, we Oregon sure Wine Growers. We sure do. Some of these at Willamette, you know, walking into the history, and I didn't really touch on it, but um, I was born in 1983. You know, it was a great year <laughs> for a lot of things. Uh, we're sitting in this room at Domain Willamette that's dedicated to Elton Vineyard that was planted in 83, as well as Willamette Valley Vineyards was more or less founded and started in 1983. But I am a book nerd, kind of librarian as well. I uh, was a librarian of the Oregon Biodynamic Group, and it's really where I got to do a deep dive into biodynamics of these really expensive out-of-print books. Um, but this book here was in the library at Willamette Valley Vineyards. You can tell so much research. And I want to highlight somebody that I admire, uh, Ted Castile. Bethel Heights and I was rereading through the chapter and um, it was basically summed it up pretty well this is uh, talking about rootstocks and talking about choosing crops but his line for plant materials you know and he said this 
When you strip away the romance, grape growing is mainly just a lot of hard work. And that's something that is never lost on me. And it sometimes gets lost in the, in the romance of the wine industry. This is, this is brutal and I do always try to, and I'm brutal in the way that, you know, it's easy to sit in a tasting room, climate controlled, and you're looking out the window, oh, it's rainy today. But the vineyard teams out there in the sideways rain making it happen. And so I really try to tie that back in. And at the end of the day, this is a farming crop that we're trying to grow to the best of our ability to get to the winery that will ferment it, put it into a bottle, create value. That, that creates value at that point and then sends it out into the public. And so it's been really cool to see this whole loop mm -hmm. and the way that it continues to <laughs> cycle. Mm -hmm. And so I think it, it'll be really interesting over the next five, 10 years to really see how this valley, how this industry adapts to the challenges we have, how we can build in that resiliency in our company and abroad. And so I just kind of want to leave you with that, that it's a, it's a lot of hard work and there's a lot of folks who do the work that go unrecognized. Mm -hmm. And I just really want to put emphasis on that. So I appreciate this opportunity and taking time from y'all's week. So. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that and, and for sharing your stories with us and, and, and sharing your time with us. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Gratitude, you guys. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.